The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 25th, 2021. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Because of the holiday, we're not bringing you a new episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. But you'll still get to listen to me and to my co-host, Evelyn Dueck. Today on the feed, we're bringing you an episode of Rational Security, our light conversational show about national security and related topics. We record every week with myself and Lawfare Scott Anderson and Alan Rosenstein. We've been bringing on a new guest every week, and this week we brought on Evelyn to talk through the week's news. If you enjoyed the show, you can find past and future episodes in the Rational Security Podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts and on the Lawfare website. Podcast is sadly not a visual medium, but Evelyn's backdrop is fantastic. There's a there's a Lego piano. Oh, there was a Lego. small Yoda that just appeared. It's very nice. Yeah, you know, it's uh, what you do to entertain yourself uh, when you're in lockdown by yourself for 18 months is you accumulate a lot of uh, Lego friends and possessions, apparently. You're giving off a lot of good whimsy energy, which is a really good fit for the vibe of the show. It's among our favorite energies. I've been doing a lot of job interviews lately, so I don't know if whimsy is exactly <laughs> the vibe I've been meaning to go for, um, but uh, professional, but fun. Uh, yeah, maybe. professional whimsy. <laughs> Is is it a terrible stereotype to say that when I think of Australians, whimsy is in fact one of the first adjectives that comes to mind? Not in an unprofessional way, but I do I do think of there's something I think fundamentally whimsical about Australia. Fantastic, as long as it's not like hooligans and uh, drunkards and uh, crocodile Dundee. Um, whimsy, whimsy is much better. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Beasts and Where to Secure Them. I'm here with my co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Say hello, Alan. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hi, I like that title. I was pretty proud of that title. People don't think of it as a sequel, but it's basically a sequel. Let's stop fooling ourselves. Arguably a prequel, I guess. And we were very excited to have our special guest, Evelyn Dueck, co-host of Arbiters of Truth with Quinta, among many, many other capacities, which I will save for putting a link in the show notes as opposed to listing in here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here today, Evelyn. G'day. Great to be here. How does it feel to like not be have the reins of the Lawfare podcast? Usually you you have your your you know iron grip on the subject matter and the flow, and this is it. You're totally letting it go. Are you terrified? Are you scared what's going to happen? Yeah, no, I please be gentle on me, Scott, as an absolute control freak. I this is I feel very vulnerable. Uh just be nice. <laughs> no promises. <laughs> no promises. We'll see where it goes from here. Um, well, we have an exciting set of topics here to talk about this week for the nothing to be thankful for edition. Because as folks will soon hear, it is a bit of a bummer of a week. And we have a set of a bummer of topics to talk about going into this most thankful of holidays. Topic number one, getting written housed. A jury has recently decided to acquit 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse of all charges, uh, including murder charges, for shooting two men in what he claimed was self-defense during last summer's unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin. 
And this response has triggered a public backlash. What does his trial and its aftermath tell us about the intersection of politics and our criminal justice system? Topic two. Now that's a power serve. A global pressure campaign by professional tennis players has forced Chinese officials to disclose the location of Chinese tennis player Peng Shui, who disappeared after publicly accusing a former senior official of sexual assault. Is this a new model for dealing with Chinese human rights abuses? And topic three, duck say quack and fish go blub. But what did Fox say? Two prominent conservative commentators have resigned from Fox News over its release of a Tucker Carlson film that they say spreads misinformation and promotes violence. Will this be enough to force the network to curb its behavior? So for our first topic, Alan, I want to turn to you, but let me let me set the stage here a little bit. Um, for the last few weeks, we have, along with much of the country, been watching a pretty high profile trial take place in Wisconsin over Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17 year old guy who, uh, according to his narrative, the facts at least went to Kenosha, Wisconsin from nearby, I think across the border in Illinois, where he was involved with a group of people who were claimed to be protecting certain car lots, businesses there during writing and unrest that came in the wake of, uh, I think it was the Jacob Blake shooting, if I recall correctly. And that ended up getting in an exchange with a number of people in which he shot two of them dead at different points of the evening uh, and shot a third man as well. He was arguing self-defense that these people were in fact attacking him and targeting him uh, and chasing him. There's obviously a dispute about that between the prosecution and the defense. The jury came back this week and acquitted him on all charges. And the assumption is, I think, while the jury doesn't come out and say this, that it was on the self-defense grounds that they found this argument persuasive as they failed to uh, convict him not just on murder charges, but also on manslaughter charges, endangering public charges, a variety of other charges. And a few minor charges regarding gun possession were actually thrown out by the judge before it went to the jury. This is trial and this result has triggered some pretty, pretty loud reactions, frankly, from kind of all corners of the political spectrum. We have a lot of people really lionizing Kyle Rittenhouse, have throughout the trial on the political right. Um, he appeared on Tucker Carlson, I think, last night or the night before. Whereas on the left, I think people are seeing this as a major miscarriage of justice. What should we be making of these kind of conflicting narratives and how do they intersect with the actual more technical legal process and legal questions raised by the trial? Yeah, so I, I have a lot of feelings about this trial that I, I will now attempt to process on the podcast. So we need to separate two things, right? We need to separate the merits of what was going on here, the applicable law of self-defense, what sort of self-defense statutes we want to have, all of that, all of which is obviously very important. But I do think in this case, what is more important, and not just because we like to talk about the discourse on the podcast, but because in such a high-profile trial where millions and millions of people are watching, the actual effect that is most important is how the trial is perceived by the millions of people who watched it. So I do think it's it's worth talking about that. I think that has been really disturbing, both in terms of the response from the right and from the left. So I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the response from the left, because I think it's, it's more, for a variety of reasons, it's more important. And look, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I, because I can, you hate your Twitter mentions, presumably, is the number one reason you've chosen this approach. Yeah, I, I hate my Twitter Alan mentions. canceling people yet again. No, no. I, well, well, I mean, here's a meta meta point, right? You know, the reason that I spend so much of my time, whether on Twitter or on this podcast, criticizing what I think are mistakes from the left and the center left is because that's, that's where I am. Like, those are my people, right? Those are my substantive commitments. And that's where I think I can do the most good to the extent I can do anything, right? I think a lot of the right, and we'll talk about this when we get to the third topic, um, is really way too far gone. And we can sit here and criticize the right for all that 
you know, they do, and that's worth it. But at the end of the day, just sort of screaming at people that you're never going to reach is kind of pointless. Now, that being said, I do think, to Scott's point, the lionization of Kyle Rittenhouse on the right is is pretty terrible. Uh, David French uh, has a great recent piece that we'll, we'll link to uh, about why, why that's the case. But, you know, there, there's no universe in which what we want to do is encourage 17-year-olds, un, untrained 17-year-olds, to take uh, assault rifles and go to scenes of riot or disturbance because, well, this is the sort of thing that is going to happen. And the idea that Kyle Rittenhouse is some sort of American patriot, I think, is is deeply pernicious. And and the kind of grossness of, you know, people like Matt Gates and, you know, Paul Gosar, who are, you know, not the most serious politicians, but they are national politicians, you know, publicly, playfully fighting with each other to see who can get Kyle Rittenhouse as their intern is, it's pretty terrible, right? So we can talk about that. But I think we can all agree that that the idea of Kyle Rittenhouse as a hero is completely inappropriate. So that being said, I do think that to me, what is most striking is just how epically the left and mainstream media and mainstream media, right. With some notable exceptions like Fox news, right. But the bulk of mainstream media, right. Is predominantly left leaning how badly they have covered this trial. Right. And how depressed that makes me for the ability of our institutions that support the rule of law to carry out that function. So let me give a couple of examples. Right. So if, if you are a casual follower of this trial, which the millions of people who know about this trial are by definition going to be casual followers. Right. There are a couple of tropes that you will have read over and over again. So, for example, that Kyle Rittenhouse traveled across state lines, something that was repeated over and over again. Now, on the one hand, this is technically true. He did travel from Illinois to Wisconsin. Now, it's also the fact that he lives in Illinois literally one mile from the Wisconsin border. And traveling to Kenosha, Wisconsin is a 30-minute car ride, right? And the invocations of he traveled across state lines were not made to elucidate some complex point about federal jurisdiction, but it was made to imply that he was part of some sort of national far-flung attempt of, you know, people outside the community to go in. Now, maybe there were those people, but he was not one of them, right? Another example, a decent amount of reporting about literal basic facts. For example, the race of the three people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot, right? So there was enough confusing reporting about that, that the Independent, a UK newspaper, right, and not a minor newspaper, reported that Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two black men, right? But in fact, Kyle Rittenhouse and his victims were all white. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there's no racial dynamic to what is going on here. Obviously, the protests in Kenosha were obviously implicated, connected to race, you know, with regard to the police shooting. Obviously, there are larger systemic questions about you know, whether or not uh, white and black defendants in these circumstances are treated fairly and treated equally, all of this is true, right? But the attempt to take this particular trial and put it into a pre-existing narrative creates huge distortions. And that's very, very dangerous when you talk about criminal defendants, right? Because at the end of the day, we either believe that every criminal defendant deserves a full and unbiased day in court where their guilt or innocence is adjudicated entirely on the merits of the case, or we do not. And I have found it incredibly, incredibly dispiriting that so many liberals, people who should know better, have not held true to this principle 
in their thinking and talking about the case, right? Now, that is not to excuse what Kyle Rittenhouse did. That is not to say that the self-defense laws as they exist in Wisconsin are appropriate, right? But it is to point out that if we let our political commitments get in the way of how we think of basic things like criminal defense and criminal law, then we can no longer claim that we are interested in the rule of law. Uh, And then it's just two sides of the political spectrum going at it um, without any sense uh, that there are some, there's some sort of neutrality that's worth preserving. So I think there's, there's a lot there. And for all of my ribbing, Alan, I think we actually may agree more than we disagree here. I will say the New Yorker has done some incredible reporting on this case. And I definitely recommend that listeners who haven't already read it, take a look at the New Yorker piece by, I think the author's name is Paige Williams on the Rittenhouse case. She's written pieces about the trial, but she also wrote a piece a couple months ago just about the case in full, which I think is really striking and sad. And what I mean by that is sad not only in the sense of the lives that were lost and the violence that was done by Rittenhouse in this incident, but also in how Rittenhouse in her reporting, he he and his family seem to have become used by not only by some people who opposed him and sort of positioned him as a you know a white supremacist or something like that when there actually wasn't evidence of that but also by people on the right and there's a lot of reporting in her story that's essentially about how people on the far right from sort of trumpist lawyers like Lynn Wood to far right fringe groups like the proud boys kind of embraced Rittenhouse offered him legal services arguably put the family in kind of a a dangerous position. And so a lot of what Williams is writing about is how this case, which is at the end of the day, I agree with you, Ellen, about the people whose lives were lost and the one person who was injured and the question of whether or not Kyle Rittenhouse should be incarcerated as a result, which is a a serious question that we should think seriously about when somebody's freedom is on the line, um, as well as when people's lives are on the line, it it became a symbol. And that's not to the benefit of anybody, really. I do think, on one hand, I, I agree with you, Alan, that it certainly doesn't seem like the national political discourse on this in one sense is healthy. On the other hand, when have we ever as a culture had accurate and you know careful and boring reporting about high profile trials right like i can't think of a really good example of the press ever doing that and so i do feel like this is a particularly incendiary issue and it gets to a lot of questions not only around political polarization but also around gun rights and self defense which i'm i'm curious for evelyn's take on but I also think it's important not to go overboard in terms of framing the overstated discourse around this as a unique departure from how these conversations usually happen. That point is well taken. And you're absolutely right, I think, that we've had a lot of sensational and crappy coverage of criminal trials, you know, for hundreds of years. I I think what is distinct here and what I find particularly disturbing is that as our media has become more ideologically siloed, right? As, it, as our media has become 
because of complicated dynamics involving the nature of journalism, the structure of the business models, the background of elite journalists, et cetera, et cetera, right? As our media consumption has increasingly divided along partisan lines, when that approach gets applied to criminal justice, right? Not just about sensationalizing a trial, but viewing it through specifically Republican lenses or Democratic lenses, I think that is uniquely harmful and something that should be should be resisted. Well, I have thoughts on that, but <laughs> I do want to I do want to ask Evelyn's thoughts as as a as an Aussie in America. I mean, obviously, our gun laws are extremely different from yours. Does this just look completely insane to you? Yeah. So, as someone that has now been here uh, basically half a decade and is hoping, if you'll have me, to stay a while longer, and generally has started to feel uh, very sort of comfortable. I'm starting to understand how you tip. Um, still struggling with the healthcare system, but you know, I'm starting to become accustomed to your norms gradually. I don't know. Maybe maybe Americans would have uh, a contrary view on that. But um, it's interesting to be on to talk about this particular topic because. This is kind of the area where I feel at my most foreign. This particular story, you know, brings in a lot of things that are peculiarly American, I think, um, and quite inaccessible to uh, someone uh, from overseas. You know, you've got race relations, you've got the left-right media dynamic, which in America is very particular to the culture here. And of course, yeah, the, the gun laws, as you're, as you're referencing, Quinta, you know, Australia is often held up as the icon of a nation coming together to uh, eradicate guns in a moment of crisis. So um, famously, there was a mass shooting in 1996, um, 35 people were killed and 23 others were wounded. And does anyone want to guess how long it took uh, for the nation to come together with bipartisan support to uh, pass national gun laws and a gun buyback scheme? I have no idea, like a month? <laughs> 12 days. Jesus Christ. Within 12 days, we had new gun laws and we have not had a mass shooting since 1996. And this is really, really popular. So uh, a survey from 2016, for example, found that 89% of Australians thought that our gun laws were either about right or not strong enough. And just 6% thought that they were too strong. So um, yeah, basically, um, coming from that perspective, growing up with that perspective, and basically, you know, having no exposure to guns in my life and then coming over here and this being the environment, it's something that I feel quite distant from. I think it's such an interesting perspective and contrast and it underscores just how many weirdly American and to some extent American subcultural touchstones this trial hit on, which I think explains a lot of the very strong reaction on different sides. Of course, it arose in the context of what was an incredible tense moment that people feel very strongly about on very different sides of the issue in the you know protests last summer, uh, situations of unrest that arose around them in the periphery, including in Kenosha, you know, and I think that explains a lot of the reaction here. I think the thing that where I feel we've been let down by the media, I think to channel what Alan's saying, I don't think it's actually the media. I think it's actually kind of like legal experts because this case was a problem from the outset. The factual narrative was one which it seemed like pretty pretty early people realized he had a pretty credible argument about self-defense. You know, he had a case where one of the people who shot 
threw a gun on him. Another person was yelling and acting erratically and supposedly took a swipe at him. He tried to retreat and people tried to follow him. I don't think it's cut and dry. Like, I can see why they would want to prosecute him. I think there's a lot of things he did that are very questionable and wrong. And that from a public policy perspective, we should try and oppose. But the way the laws are written in Wisconsin, and frankly, in a good part of the country where we have a strong self-defense element, this checks the boxes of that enough that you can see a jury getting there. And I think a lot of people are most upset about this, if you get down to it, and I get this, and I sympathize with it, is a lot of it to the perspective of that if this young man were a person of color, this wouldn't have come out the same way. All the cultural assumptions about motive, relative levels of threat, you know, all of these horrible biases that are built into inevitably any jury pool you're going to get of any pool of Americans just about is going to come out really differently. And I think that's probably correct. Uh, you know, you, you don't know 100%. I wouldn't be surprised if it's certainly correct in a lot of circumstances. Um, certainly a very different dynamic around this trial than, you know, similar cases where people of color have been on trial. And that's very true. But I don't like that a criminal trial where an individual's liberty is at issue and where I think, as Alan's kind of channeled, people should be aiming to give criminal defendants the benefit of a doubt. We should be aiming for a less maximalist, less obtrusive and punitive general justice system is where we keep channeling these feelings and these objections and making them hinge on a case that legally is going to be a problem. You're kind of setting yourself up to be disappointed. And frankly, I think conservative commentators saw this from the outset and knew this was a case to jump on and make a cultural touchstone precisely because they probably, I think, A, read the ground a little bit, either legally or politically, and said, like, this is a good case for us to to kind of latch onto in this historical moment. And, you know, I, I think in, to some extent, people kind of set themselves up a little bit for failure and failing to recognize some of the problems with this case. So, yeah, two points here. I think that one, I do want to make sure that we're not, you know, don't paint with too broad a brush here. And I do think it's also important to note that, you know, among some people on the left and center left who were sort of cheering for Rittenhouse's conviction and incarceration. There were also a lot of folks I saw on the sort of on the left advocating for criminal justice reform who were making the point that, you know, the people who were excoriating the judge, who was admittedly seems a little wacky for <laughs> for taking an approach friendly to defendants that, you know, that's maybe something that we should want for more defendants setting aside the particular peculiarities of this judge. I mean, the other thing I would say, building off your point, Scott, is that I wonder whether we're pouring all this energy into particular trials because there is no prospect in America of real gun reform and because self-defense and stand your ground and castle doctrine laws and jurisprudence just seem to be becoming increasingly enmeshed. And so people who are opposed to those laws and those legal doctrines, there is really no political root other than expressing outrage over a particular conviction or a lack thereof. I just want to say one thing in response to Quintus' point about, about the judge, because I think that's actually another really important point. So the judge, Judge Schroeder, is admittedly, let's call him a bit quirky. He has some interesting habits like letting defendants choose jurors out of like a bingo ball pit thing, lottery. It's a little weird, but he does that admittedly for all his criminal defendants, not just randomly Kyle Rittenhouse, to be clear. Um, and he like doesn't seem to know how to turn his cell phone ringer off. And the cell phone ring tone happens to be God bless America, 
just like, I don't know, a catchy enough song, but that was taken by a lot of commenters as evidence that he was part of some like MAGA conspiracy. I just want to make the point that the criticisms of the judge here, I think, were really bad, really troublesome, and almost entirely inappropriate. And I think the the judge treated Rittenhouse like he does any uh, any of the defendants that that you know appear before him fairly favorably. But you know, we do have this whole presumption of you know innocence and beyond a reasonable doubt standard, and we want our judges to be fairly defendant protective, right? And the attacks on this judge, I thought, were both kind of on the merits, pretty grotesque, but they also so fundamentally undermine the whole argument that people on the left correctly made about Donald Trump when he would attack judges, right? When he would attack, quote unquote, so-called judges, when he would you know, attack Judge Curiel for his race, right? Like, you can't complain, I thought correctly at the time, that the other side is attacking judges when the moment it's politically convenient for you to do so, you do the same on the flimsiest, flimsiest of standards. And and that to me, I found particularly infuriating about a lot of the sloppiness of how this trial was covered, you know, not so much in the liberal media, which I think made its mistakes about the judge, but like wasn't super crazy, but certainly like on Twitter. The one thing I think we just, I want to say before you change topics is we should bear in mind that this case is happening at the same time as another case um, that has gotten, I think, a little bit less attention, although it still has gotten a fair amount of media coverage, but I think is, is really important as well, which is the Ahmaud Arbery case, a case where a black man was essentially while jogging, chased down and killed by three white men uh, on the pretext that you know they thought he was involved with some breaking and entering in their community and that they are also arguing self-defense uh, based, in fact, on the idea that he, uh, you know, when confronted by people with guns, he, you know, acted to try and take one of their guns. And that was enough to warrant uh, active self-defense. That's a case where my understanding of the legal factors seem to weigh very strongly against these three criminal defendants for this case. If nothing else, you know, they proactively came and approached him after he tried to flee, continued to chase him, obviously representing lethal force, something he as an unarmed person was not doing, even if he may have reached for, you know, this gun. It is a case that in a lot of ways, I think, you know, if this were, if you were to see a similar verdict here, as you saw in the Rittenhouse trial, I think would be truly outrageous and a terrifying, terrifying you know, indictment of the way that these cases are being approached and perceived by jurors in our juror system, a system that inherently has biases kind of built into it almost by design. And that's hard to purge out institutionally. Although, you know, there are certainly more steps we can take than we do do now. So that's, I think at this point, we're we're injury deliberations, we're waiting for a verdict in that trial. But it is, I think, the type of case that deserves a lot more of our scrutiny and a lot more is a better test case in some ways for our justice system, unlike the Rittenhouse case, which because it had such a messy set of facts from the outset, it's a shame that that's the one that has gotten so many people glommed onto. But uh, we'll see what comes out of the the Arbery case as well. And then, you know, may have a follow on conversation at some point in the future. So I'm not even going to attempt to do a transition here and we're just going from one super depressing subject to another. We're just going from bleak to bleaker. Speaking of things that are bad, for which we are not thankful. Yes, we don't. We don't want any of these things. Um, so, listeners may have seen there is a uh, story that's been in the headlines about the disappearance or semi disappearance of Peng Shuai, who is a Chinese female tennis star. 
she posted on Weibo, the sort of Chinese Twitter alternative, that she had been in a consensual relationship with a high-ranking Communist Party official who at one point then sexually assaulted her. The censors leapt into action. I think the, the post was removed from Weibo within like half an hour of being posted and Peng completely disappeared from the scene, which caused an enormous outcry from largely athletes, I think, uh, to begin with, including female athletes and other female tennis players, um, not only because Peng was extremely visible as a really a major tennis star in China, but also because, of course, the Beijing Olympics are coming up. And there have been calls there were calls in response to her disappearance that perhaps the Beijing Olympics should be boycotted. In response, the the Chinese government seems to have sort of put her forward on some appearances. She did a, a video call with the International Olympic Committee. There, I think, have been a couple public appearances, including one video of her having dinner with some folks in which they very visibly uh, say the date repeatedly, which kind of seems like the video equivalent of uh, a hostage photo where, you know, the hostage holds up a newspaper with the the current date on it. And Chinese state affiliated media have really been trying to play it down, I think, somewhat clumsily. So there's some really incredible tweets from Hu Shijin, who is the uh, editor-in-chief of the Global Times, saying, as a person who is familiar with the Chinese system, I don't believe Peng Shuai has received retaliation and repression speculated by foreign media for the thing people talked about. Um, so, and then there's a, another tweet from who where he posts a video of Peng uh, appearing to sign tennis balls saying, can any girl fake such a sunny smile under pressure? So the story is incredible and I think pretty disturbing. It raises a lot of questions. I mean, my my main question to begin with was just how we situate this in the kind of the broader scope of American entertainment and sports entities sort of bending over backward to make the Chinese Communist Party happy. Like, do we think that this is a, a breaking point? Is it an exception? And what makes it special, particularly? I think this is a really striking case because in my mind, this is the first time that we have really seen an industry group, in this case, global tennis players, Women's Tennis Association is the actual industry group, but it was broader than that, this kind of effort to push back, actually really pushing back on China in this particular case, calling them out, despite whatever market consequences may have been implicitly or perhaps expressly, I, I don't know what the full range of Chinese response was to talk about this case in this way. You know, we have, don't have to go that far back to think to the case of John Cena, who came out and said some statement, I think, about Taiwan and ended up issuing this very embarrassing, you know, two minute apology video uh, that's posted on YouTube and where you've seen other movie studios, movie stars have to roll back criticism. The NBA have to roll back or limit criticism of China around Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, go back a little bit further, less of an issue more recently, and lots of other contexts to say like that that this is just such a wildly different response. Tennis players deserve a lot of credit for this. Like it's real ballsy of them. I'm sure China is a significant market. I don't I actually haven't looked at <laughs> I'm curious. Sorry, I need to call out that that was so good. That was so good. 
this whole segment is just a pretext for that fun. Uh, but no, I mean, it's a really, really impressive move on a lot of their parts. Or like Roger Federer, Serena Williams, all these people should deserve a lot of credit about saying they're putting whatever financial stake they may have on China on the line and saying, we're going to call you out for this bad behavior. I think the fact that it's close to the Olympics probably helped a little bit in China, frankly, caving relatively quickly. Um, but it's notable and it shows that maybe these other social forces, it's more of a double-edged sword than people think. You just have to get these industries over their fear of the economic consequences from losing the Chinese market. And frankly, from a US policy making perspective, there are ways you could do that. Um, maybe by punishing people who choose to limit their speech for uh, at the kind of direction of Chinese officials or providing compensation or somehow counterbalancing China's real willingness to leverage their aggressive market ability to limit those sorts of speech and coerce different types of speech from different people. I, I think it's something that needs to be looked at because it, it's just a sign here that China, you know, I think the regime in China is is a little bit more sensitive to these sorts of things than we realize and to the popular demand of their public for these sorts of, for lack of a way to put it, kind of consumer goods like services, like access to sports entertainment, things like that. And it's something that, uh, you know, the Chinese regime is going to have to reckon with if it's going to keep engaging in this type of horrible behavior. So I study content moderation and my shtick is that everything is a content moderation issue. In fact, like my party trick is that I'll go to parties and someone will be telling me about something that's going on in their life and I'll tell them why it's a content moderation issue. It makes me very popular and I actually feel bad for letting the, the team down, uh, letting the brand down by missing the content moderation angle on the first segment. But moving past that. Um, I, I have to ask, when's the last time you were invited to a party based on this being your party trick? Yeah, exactly. I thought it was the pandemic, but maybe, uh, maybe it's something else. I, I'm, I'll raise that with my therapist. Um, so the, I think content moderation is, um, you know, it, it, it's a big part of this story, I think, and it comes in on a number of different angles. I mean, the most obvious angle is that this sort of series of events speaks to the importance of these online public spaces for public debate. I mean, uh, as Quinta was recounting, Twitter is one of the central forums for public diplomacy. And, uh, you know, it's where the, the Chinese state media is trying to control the narrative and flood the zone. But on the other hand, in China, um, it's obviously the completely opposite approach and complete censorship. Uh, it's impossible to find any reference to Peng or the, or the events at all. Um, and I think it speaks to, you know, how effective content moderation can be if you don't care about false positives, right? Like you can completely obliterate references to any kind of topic or events if you are not so concerned with any effects on freedom of speech, right? Like one of the problems that we have uh, in the West is trying to draw this line between when we want to take down harmful content or things that uh, platforms want to eradicate, but you have these error costs when you're content moderating at scale of it being impossible to evaluate everything uh, piece by piece. But when you use uh, keywords, to find and remove content, you're going to hit a lot of false positives and take down content that isn't necessarily going to be in that bucket. Chinese government not so concerned uh, with those false positives and uh, taking a very, very different approach. And I think it speaks to that issue of content moderation at scale can be approached in many different ways. So I, I want to zoom out here because I think this is an interesting example of what I think is an emerging I don't want to call it consensus, but an emerging sense of what strategy to China has to look like. And, and that that is that when it comes to Chinese hard power, 
there's not a huge amount that can be done, nor necessarily should there be a huge amount to be done. China is the world's second, you know, most powerful nation. It will remain that way for the next century, probably. That's inevitable. It's just kind of how it is. But Chinese soft power should and can be opposed because, in fact, the Chinese model, right? And I don't want to call it the Chinese model. It's really the Xi Jinping authoritarian model, right? There's nothing inherently Chinese about it. You know, just see Taiwan, right? That that model is increasingly being recognized for what it is, which is just kind of garden variety authoritarianism that the West or more broadly liberal democracies need not kowtow to and need not support. And that that is worth whatever economic hit to the relevant industries that that takes, right? So, you know, sports and entertainment, it's sort of kind of all one big industry. Um, and I, I think that whether it's, you know, as Scott explained it, the response of, of the tennis organizations to this, or, you know, the response of the NBA, which I think both as an organization, but especially some of its players, uh, Ennis Cantor, a, a Boston, uh, Boston Celtics player who has been really, really outspoken about the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs. I think the appropriate response here has to be that both the relevant institutions and ultimately the public who is going to have to pressure these institutions has to not so much create a cultural boycott of China. That's not quite the right framework, I think, but a recognition that these things have to be called out. These things have to be opposed. These things have to be criticized. It must be made clear globally that this authoritarian Chinese model is not the future. And if that means that Hollywood makes a bunch less money in China, or you know, we occasionally have to boycott a Chinese Olympics, that is a cost well worth paying. One thing that I found really interesting about this debacle is just how clumsy the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party were in orchestrating this whole thing. I mean, did they think nobody would notice that she had vanished? Right? I mean, do do they really think that if you put out a video of Peng having dinner with a bunch of people saying today is, you know, November 21st, that everyone would just kind of move on and say, oh, well, okay, you know, looks like she's doing fine, right? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it just, it's astonishingly clumsy. There was a really interesting New York Times piece that, that Evelyn shared with me before we started recording by Li Yuan, essentially writing that, you know, this may be kind of a, a side effect of the Chinese Communist Party use being used to having so much control over media within China that it just has absolutely no idea what to do with media outside China. And I think that going back to Hu Shijin's tweets, I think they're a really good example there because, of course, the irony of him using Twitter to communicate with that with the world is, of course, that Twitter is banned in China. And yet, if you if you look at his tweets. There are hundreds and thousands of people responding to them, essentially saying, oh, you don't want to talk about that thing people talked about? What is that? Posting the text, uh, the English translated text of Peng's original Weibo post. It really just seems like if you wanted to silence discussion around this, it it is the clumsiest possible way to do it, especially if what you're concerned about is maintaining relationships with the West and not blowing things up over it. It's totally bewildering. 
an alternative explanation to just hoping that people won't notice is hoping that people will notice um, and it being a complete expression of power. Like, um, look at what we can do if you cause trouble. But, you know, I agree. It's completely, um, some of the statements are completely baffling and sort of uh, ham-fisted that it's it's hard to understand. But the dichotomy between China's approach to domestic messaging and international messaging and how much they care about what happens on Twitter, even when Twitter is not available in China and the amount of pressure that they often put on Twitter to take down specific posts about the country is is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're getting at exactly the issue here, Evelyn, which is, which is that there's actually multiple audiences that China is speaking to here. And we have seen China be willing to prioritize, frankly, its domestic audience because it's confident that its foreign audience won't bite it in the way that it feels it in a way that's going to impact it, in part because of its economic leverage and other factors. I think this this shows that that actually may not be the case, that they're miscalculating, that they've overreached in prior cases, and that they're going to have to give some voice to foreign audiences as well, because otherwise they're going to take action, are willing to take actions that the Chinese domestic audience that it seems like the regime cares more about, is more concerned about, is it's going to feel and react to somehow. Who knows how exactly, because there's not as much mechanism for democratic expression of discontent, obviously, in the system, but there's some sense of pressure. I think it's, it's not, again, it strikes me as a sign of weakness on the part of the regime. You know, they they are prioritizing this, this domestic expressions of power in ways that have clear negative consequences and that whether they can't get their ducks in a row to actually do something different uh, or whether that's just really where their priority lies, neither one speaks really strongly of their ability to engage in policy moving forward. In some ways, that makes them potentially more dangerous, I think. But it's a really interesting case study, and we'll see what happens in the next one of these incidents. I suspect this may be getting of a shift in the trend, but we'll have to wait and see. So let's move from a foreign PR nightmare to a domestic PR nightmare uh, and talk about our third segment. That's how you do it, Alan. Segway City. Thank you. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So... This is in some sense a small story, but I think there's a much bigger lesson here that I want to tease out. So the the small story is that two longtime Fox News contributors, Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes, diehard conservatives whose conservative bona fides cannot be questioned, um, have quit the network, apparently in protest over a now infamous special that uh, Tucker Carlson ran earlier this month called Patriot Purge, which how shall we say, basically was a conspiracy disinformation nonsense about January 6th, arguing that the Capitol insurrection was not, in fact, a attack by right-wing protesters, but was rather a false flag operation concocted by Biden and the left, something, something, black helicopter, something, something, they're going to take away all your guns. It gets really weird really quickly. It's total nonsense. It's deeply irresponsible. Carlson has gotten a lot of, and Fox have gotten a lot of criticism for it, though apparently with very little effect, except that these two longtime uh, conservatives have now uh, resigned. Now, while they are conservatives, they are pretty never Trump conservatives. Uh, They're the founders of uh, kind of never Trump right conservative media thing called The Dispatch, uh, which actually has a great podcast, uh, one one of my favorite political podcasts, uh, which I, I highly recommend for folks. And so I think this raises some interesting questions that I would like to get all your thoughts on. So one question I had was whether this resignation suggests that Fox 
has gone too far or that it's now fully free of any internal constraints to, I wouldn't even call it moderation. Let's just call it responsible, deep conservatism, or maybe both, right? Maybe it's both gone too far and now it's totally unchained. And the sort of other question I had is, so what do you do with a network like Fox, right? What do you do, other, in other words, with a network that traffics in a lot of really damaging disinformation, but is also super popular? Do you ignore it? Do you try to firewall it off from society and the discourse, or do you try to engage with it, right? You know, this is, seems like a real conundrum. I mean, I, no one from Fox is calling and asking me to go on, but like, I do sometimes just like wonder, like if someone wanted me to do that, like, should I do that? Would that be a good thing or would that just be giving credence to this increasingly crazy network, which again, still has a lot of good journalists, but in terms of what it actually puts forward in its prime time um, is mostly uh, opinion nonsense. So let me start with, with you, Scott, because you've been on Fox News. I have been on Fox News, uh, not a while now, but a couple when of years ago, when Fox? I made a couple of appearances. I was on Fox News talking about Soleimani stuff uh, <laughs> and Iran war power stuff uh, a few times. And then I was on one other time. I cannot honestly remember what it was about. And both times, honestly, were totally reasonable uh, experiences, like no different than any other of the occasional TV appearances I have made uh, as part of, uh, you know, being a think tanky person. It's just part of part of the work we do is this sort of media stuff. And so, you know, I, I from that perspective, it wasn't any difference. They're also kind of more like, you know, serious topics. It was not the opinion side of Fox. And that's something worth bearing in mind here, because actually the departure of these two guys is not the whole story here. What's also part of the narrative is that two really prominent, and I think I think generally pretty good newscasters Fox has, Chris Wallace, Brett Baer, also were reported credibly by these two people who quit as having raised similar objections inside Fox and have actually actively on their own shows been essentially putting forward segments that directly contradict the Carlson documentary. Doing so deliberately, it's worth noting, like and an effort to give counterweight against this narrative that the Carlson documentary, uh, documentary in quotes, I should say, Carlson film is putting F- fever dream, fever dream. Yeah, exactly. Whatever we want to call this, you know, this mockumentary. And that's actually, I think, really telling. There is this internal tension that we have seen pop up time and time again. It came up really to the fore, if you recall on election night this past presidential election, in some of the days after that regarding contradictions and different views in Fox culture. Obviously, there's a war going on within Fox News still that this is probably oversimplifying, but between the more opinion commentators that frankly, probably are the money drivers for the network, I strongly suspect. Um, you know, I think that's why people come to Fox News who, who are, you know, really faithful watchers. And the news segments, which are frankly not always devoid of their own particular perspective, to say the least. But on the times I've watched them have been more reasonable or fairly reasonable, um, or at least can be on on a lot of topics. You know, and I think I have very credible people like Chris Wallace and Brett Baer and other people involved in them. So, you know, what does this mean generally? I, I think the real question here is like, if you're biasing one of these towards the other, a lot of it seems to come down to the bottom line. And that's why it's so interesting, I think, that Fox is making this decision to back Carlson kind of aggressively, or at least willing to stick by him now, in a moment where we've seen 
other media organizations, I'm putting that in quotes as well, that have been peddling similar sorts of narratives actually facing legal consequences. I'm talking about Alex Jones, who's now been on the wrong side of several libel lawsuits, um, now related to a different set of issues. That's that's primarily related to Sandy Hook and some horrible stories he spread, lies he spread about people involved in Sandy Hook and some of the victims' families, but nonetheless showing that there are these sorts of legal consequences and that this sort of quote-unquote reporting doesn't put it beyond them just because you're coming from a broader I don't think it suggests you're coming you're beyond the reach of these laws because you're coming from a sort of media organization. And frankly, I kind of think that's the right legal remedy here. Like insofar as Carlson is peddling specific lies about people, I think they should take legal action and hit the bottom, the pocketbooks at Fox News, because that's what's driving this behavior. And, I, you know, I, I don't see what a other sort of remedy there is out of this, aside from, you know, changing consumer behavior. And if they're going to put themselves forward as a news organization, uh, not just a source of entertainment which is the defense that a lot of people play in these sorts of cases, like they're going to have to bear the legal consequences of that. So mark me completely unsurprised that Fox, that first off that Carlson produced this documentary. Second, that Fox allowed him to produce it. Third, that people complained within Fox and were shot down. I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised that Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes quit over it. If only because it's not totally clear to me what they thought was going to happen. I mean, if you read David Falkenflick, uh, who's NPR's great media reporter, has a uh, really interesting piece on this. And he he quotes, I think, Goldberg saying that they'd been assured after the election that Fox was going to calm down. So look, I I personally mark me as glad that Goldberg and Hayes quit. I think that was the right thing to do. I also think it's important to note just as a sidebar what we mean when we say quit, uh, because I think this is often a little confusing. So they are not, you know, paid hosts on Fox, but they were paid for their appearances. They had a contract with the network, which is different from, say, what what Scott did, um, which is basically you just pop on and you sit around for a while and they don't pay you anything because it's so great to be on TV that people will do it for free. So so Goldberg and Hayes are, are severing a more substantial relationship there. But it's not obvious to me what line the Patriot Purge quote-unquote documentary crossed that Carlson hasn't already crossed a million times, or if it did cross a new line, it's not obvious to me that it wasn't obvious he was going to cross it insofar as he's going 80 miles an hour down the highway, speeding across any number of lines, including spreading the great replacement, you know, white nationalist theories. And so that just leaves me kind of puzzled about, you know, what people thought was going to to happen here at Fox. At this point, we know that Fox is a bad actor. I think I would argue because of that, that, you know, everyone needs to make their own decisions here. But I do think people distancing themselves from the network um, and making it sort of not something that can be associated with in polite society is a good step. But I also worry that using defamation lawsuits as a tool here is just too slow. You know, um, so like Dominion and Smartmatic, the voting machine companies that are suing Fox, as well as a number of other entities in response to the lies spread about supposed election manipulation. A handful of those lawsuits have just started going into discovery. A lot of them haven't even gotten to the motion to dismiss phase. They're gonna, That's going to keep going for a while. The big lie is still out there and it's growing. 
as I think we see from from this Carlson documentary. So it's just not clear to me what you do here because the legal options are too slow. And any option that isn't too slow raises, you know, if the government does it, obviously substantial constitutional problems. The, the solution is people shouldn't want to watch Fox News, but that's obviously not very much of a solution. So, folks, uh, this is also a content moderation issue. Evelyn Dewitt coming to the near, next party near <laughs> exactly. you. Why aren't people inviting me to parties? I mean, come on. <laughs> I would invite you to my party. Public service announcement. Invite Evelyn to your parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So actually, maybe this is an example of where we shouldn't be looking for a content moderation angle, but because everything is a content moderation issue, uh, there's always a story about the content moderation implications of things like this. So there was a story in the Washington Post about what are each of the platforms going to do with the preview video of Tucker Carlson's special, right? And it's like through this looking glass moment of what are the platforms going to do about this documentary that is on cable television, right? Like I don't think the, the little preview on Facebook is really necessarily the underlying problem here. Um, but I think it speaks to a broader dynamic that we often see in content moderation debates, which is that it feels like a very obvious lever to pull, right? Like how to solve the Fox News issue is a really hard thing to do. And Fox News isn't going to be susceptible to the kind of public pressure that we have seen tech platforms be susceptible and respond to. And so, you know, the lever is right there in front of you. You know, there are tech executives that could literally just push a button. I, I mean, Maybe it's not quite literally, but it's pretty close to literally push a button and get rid of this thing. And so there's this temptation of, well, if they can, maybe they ought to. And in, and indeed, there was some responses. So Twitter didn't do anything, um, but Facebook labeled it with a sensitive content warning. Uh, YouTube has age restricted the video and uh, TikTok's just obliterating it. Uh, apparently, if you search for false flag on, on uh, TikTok, you don't get very much. And so, I, you know, I mean, is that is that winning? Um, it also goes back to Alan's question of like, do we segment this off from society or do we leave it there to be debated? I mean, this is something that's happening in American society. Does it does it serve any purpose to um, eradicate it from the online public spheres? It just seems to me to be uh, an instance of where, you know, we're talking about content moderation or this story is talking about content moderation because the underlying sort of societal and institutional failure is so much harder to solve. So a lot of good things come from Australia. Evelyn, Hugh Jackman, kangaroos, but also some bad things like the Murdochs. And I think it is worth talking about that just for a second, right? So Fox News obviously is owned by Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch family. And look, I don't like explanations for things that rely on the personality idiosyncrasies of individuals, because I don't know, what do you do about that? And it's not so kind of analytically interesting. But I do think this is a case, I think, in which ultimately this will stop when the Murdochs feel like it is either no longer in their financial interest or, and this may be more relevant, it is not in their social interest to continue to own a network that is producing Tucker Carlson and his associated garbage. And so to all you billionaires out there who are hanging out with the Murdochs, because that's what I assume all these billionaires do is just hang out with each other. Please say mean things to them. Uh, and seriously, consider some, some light to moderate social shunning um, because ultimately they are the ones responsible. At any moment, they could 
fire Tucker Carlson, absorb the hit financially and do a huge, huge benefit to liberal democracy. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that Tucker Carlson would go away, right? He'd be picked up by OANN or America First or, I don't know, some right-wing social media, whatever. But it would go a, a meaningful way. And, and I think in the absence of government restraint, which I don't think anyone wants to see um, because that road is a, is, a, is a bad one, I think you just have to make people own not just their own content, because I think Tucker Carlson is beyond redemption, but I'm not sure that's true for the Murdochs, at least not the younger generation of Murdochs who will at some point inherit the empire from their father. So that's a totally fair dig, Alan. And I apologize on behalf of my compatriots. Um, you know, whenever people talk about foreign interference in American elections, uh, I try to keep my head very low because I really think the Murdochs are responsible for a lot more than a few uh, Russian Facebook posts featuring Bernie Sanders coloring books. So, uh, you know, <laughs> sorry. And uh, like, yeah, I, I don't know if it's any consolation what the Murdochs have done to the Australian media scene is way worse uh, than what they've done to yours in many respects so um but how bad I, I just assume that all australians <laughs> know each other and like hang out at barbecues on bondi beach and therefore you know just just bon bon die. thank you thank you on. i was there it was really beautiful i really i should go back to sydney this is my main takeaway i should just go back to sydney <laughs> <laughs> well i i just want to close with the with the one thighs i i think what you're saying alan is right. I think we're, we're all kind of actually kind of hitting on the same page here, which there needs to be some sort of accountability for this. But like the idea of social shaming is not, I don't think the right mechanism for this. Like particularly when you're hitting the pocketbook because you are, you know, you're, it's not that you're can't do it. You can, it's just never going to be effective. Right. Cause we're talking about cultural splits here, but these sorts of actions, it's different. Like this document, again, mockumentary, this doc, this thing that Tucker Carlson played out strikes me as a, just a, dramatically different beast than things Fox has done before. And a lot of what Fox has done before there is, is in a similar vein, but there's like at least colorable aspects of there being opinion and different glosses and perceptions of facts. Whereas this does seem to be misrepresenting substantive facts from the clips and previews I've seen. I have not sat down to watch it. And if that's the case, like that's why we have laws that to, to allow people to have civil actions around this sort of thing. And that's how you get the pocketbook. That's how you stigmatize things. That's how you change the balance. And it's a tool set that I think people have understandably been afraid to use when it gets close to the media. And I think for good reasons, a lot of cases, but this is a public problem that these laws were designed to address. And I, I think it's time to start thinking about ways they might be able to better address them. Well, that brings us to our time for this episode of rational security. But of course, because this is rational security, we would not leave you without some object lessons for which we are thankful in this special holiday episode. Uh, with that in mind, Quinta, let me hand it over to you for our first object lesson. I have a Thanksgiving themed object lesson. There are many ways to make pie dough. Some of them are better than others. I have made pie dough many ways. I will not begrudge anyone their own way of making pie dough. But if you struggle with pie dough, I have a recommendation for you. It is the Smitten Kitchen All Butter Really Flaky Pie Dough. I have used it many times. It has never failed me. It has a minimum number of ingredients, which, you know, as uh, all the people rushing out to the grocery store in a panic uh, and getting stuck in the parking lot pre-Thanksgiving can surely appreciate uh, definitely recommend it if you are either looking for a new recipe or frightened by pie dough and want to try something easy. Uh, my only tip is handle it as little as possible and use very cold water. So once you've made 
this pie dough based on Quinta's recommendation. You have to fill it with something. And my object lesson is the filling for your pie dough. And it is a amazing recipe for sweet potato pie uh, from the inestimable Stella Parks of Serious Eats. Stella in our household is one of the kind of the, the few recipe authors that has achieved first name basis, right? So, you know, there's Kenji, there's Stella, there's Deb, there's Julia, right? There, you know, there's like first name people. And Stella is is that is that person for us. It is so good. And I will say it's I love my wife. There's no but here. I love my wife. I definitely I married up. I'm the reacher. I could not be happier. But you know, no relationship is perfect. And um, a, a ongoing source of tension in my household for several years has been my wife's dislike of pumpkin pie, which is a big problem for me because I love pumpkin pie. It's like basically the thing I am most excited to eat on Thanksgiving. My wife makes some good points. The pumpkin pies tend to be kind of kind of mediocre. They're very heavy. Um, like they're not that interesting. Really, you're in for the pumpkin spice flavor because like pumpkin doesn't really taste like anything. And we were recently introduced by a friend of ours to this recipe, sweet potato pie, which has all the best taste qualities of pumpkin, but with this immensely light, fluffy texture. And my wife likes it and I like it. And so my marriage is even stronger now because now, now we have figured out our shared Thanksgiving dessert forever. I will tell you the secret for the pumpkin pie that you're missing out on. Maybe this is what the sweet potato pie does is it's got to separate the eggs, whip the egg whites, fold it back in. And it's like a mousse basically at that point. It's like light and fluffy. It's not like the dense pumpkin pie. Once you get that going, it's great. Incredibly hard to execute. I mess it up every, I'm, I am the pie guy for my Thanksgiving. I, my wife and I have like a small assembly line where we make like eight pies for both a Friendsgiving and a Thanksgiving every year. And like, that's the one that I have about a 50% success rate. But when it hits, man, it hits. See, it's Apple, delicious. Apple will never do that to you. Apple will never do you wrong. That's true. I was just about to say, I have like grew up as a not fruit pie person, having only ever had pumpkin and pecan. Uh, I had it, but I like, it wasn't a regular thing on my Thanksgiving table. When I got married, my wife makes a cherry pie. And it's amazing, exceptional. Uh, and there's like a great map somewhere that probably the New York Times or one of these other media outsides put out about what different types of pie people eat in different parts of the country. And there's like a wild regional divide over what people eat in different parts of the country for Thanksgiving. And fruit pie, I think, is in the West. Well, don't even get me started on dressing versus stuffing. I mean, there's a lot of, it's very fraught. Well, it's exciting time. Well, I will say for my object lesson, because I am on my food week uh, in my now only every other object lesson is allowed to be about food category, is that Thanksgiving, the one thing I need, uh, even though I don't eat turkey and don't have tryptophan coursing through my veins, nonetheless, it's a sleepy time. I tend to, you know, watch a lot of football and drink on Thanksgiving. And like by the end of the day, I'm pretty tired and I have a kid to take care of and lots of responsibilities to manage before I get to go to sleep. And so I need a little jolt of energy. Uh, and so I know for the next five days, I'm going to be drinking a lot of coffee. And I have what I have decided is, I think, my favorite way to make coffee, which I'm going to endorse, which I know is a controversial topic, but I'm going to throw this out there. Alan can feel free to fight back, uh, as I know he's strong feelings about this as well. But I have been for several years and have recently fallen back in love with the AeroPress, a wonderful little $25 device that lets you make something like approximating, if you want it to be like approximating an espresso type coffee. I would think it's like closest to an Americano and it's like strength and flavor profile. It's phenomenal. But the frustration for me is to do it well, to do it right, you always had to do the inverted method, which involves precariously balancing this AeroPress on your countertop. Uh, you put coffee and then stir and then flipping it over to put on top of your cup. At least one out of 20 times, I end up dropping it and it just goes everywhere and I'm scalded, covered in coffee. It's a disaster. That's why I'm late for our morning editorial meetings. Um, 
But there is this phenomenal device I bought recently that has worked so well called the Prismo attachment <laughs> from an off-brand for the AeroPress, which is this little like seal you put on the bottom and it makes it so it doesn't leak any water through until you put pressure on it. So you can build your whole coffee right side up. It doesn't spill out on your counter and then you don't have to invert it anymore. It makes such a difference. And somehow like the press feels much more even. It's like even pressure. So the flavor doesn't get like a little bit different, a little bitter or stronger, depending on if you have like inconsistent press. So I highly recommend it. If you're looking for a good way to make a strong cup of coffee or cup of cup of coffee for yourself and your loved ones this Thanksgiving, think about picking up one of these things. I'm a big fan. I just looked this up online. And I, I second, uh, I approve, Scott, of your love for the AeroPress. It's cool. This thing seems to function as like a pressurized portafilter that you would get in an espresso machine. Very clever. It's incredible. It is one of the very few objects that I brought with me from Australia when I moved. Uh, it's fantastic for travel. It makes a great coffee. It's like a genius in a genius idea of engineering. Like it self cleans. I'm, I will look up the the Prismo attachment because I am also a fan of the inverted brewing method. Although I will say one alternative is to just not be clumsy. But anyway, not an option for all of us, Evelyn. Not an option for all of us. Some of us are just born that way. My condolences then to the one in 20 coffees that you lose. <laughs> okay, so my object lesson is not the AeroPress, although I would uh, would second that heartily. Um, it is, so after you have made the pie dough that, that Quinta recommends and filled it with the filling that Alan has pointed us to, and after Scott's coffee wears off, you may need a nap, a Thanksgiving nap. Uh, and so I have a genuinely life-changing object for you on my very short uh, list of talents. Sleeping is not one of them and it's this nightly battle and standoff between me and sleep until uh, I discovered the weighted blanket and uh, Barabi is a fantastic brand and Barabi if you are out there and listening and need a brand ambassador uh, sign me up it is like a warm hug every night uh, and will and has genuinely improved my life and the life of those around me because I am uh, significantly less grumpy um, now that my sleep has improved. And that's the one that's like knit and like woven, right? So it looks like you're like trapped in a net of dreams as opposed to being weighed down by marbles <laughs> knit into something. Yeah. And you can, you can stick your toes through, uh, which for some reason oh. I have no idea why is extremely satisfying. I will say I love my weighted <laughs> like blanket. It. it is like being given a hug. I think it is like having it over me is what dogs feel like when you put on a thunder shirt. It's just you feel very secure and comforted. Well, I think that's a great endorsement. I think we all could use a hug on this Thanksgiving. But until then, until we can get together in person and give each other that hug or get a weighted blanket, uh, we will have to bid adieu for this week. Thank you all so much for joining us. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, as well as links to articles and object lessons we discussed. You can purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed feed for this very podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your friends and loved ones or your enemies, really anyone. We don't care. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Stu of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the inestimable Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Quinta and Allen, and our special guest, Evelyn Dweck, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>